If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. It's a little book in the New Testament. Um, it's after the Corinthians. It's, you know, all the Eans are together in Scripture. I don't know if you knew that. You got your Corinthians and then your Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Yeah, all the Eans are together. If you're trying to remember the order of those, uh, go eat popcorn. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians? Yeah. Anyways, okay. So here we are. Philippians chapter 2. If you're there, say amen. All right. Philippians chapter 2. These are probably words that you've heard before. Words that you may be in some way familiar with. And it's an inspiring theme, really. You know, when you start kind of reading this, it's so poetic. Therefore, I'm reading from the New King James. In verse 1, it says, Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. And this is the kind of mind. In verse 3 and 4, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others how? Better. Better. Better than himself. What? Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of who? Others. Of others. And then verse 5, the capstone of this, says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in your mommy. (laughs) <laughs> no, <laughs> let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, right? I mean, he is the quintessential example of what it means, like that song that we sing, make me a servant. When we sing, make me a servant, we're saying, make me like, like Jesus. And so today, we're, we're, we're going to be looking at Philippians 2, exploring the dynamics of what it means to be a servant, exploring the, the foundations of servanthood, Okay. I don't know if that's a word that really rings off your tongue very well, but servanthood is our focus today. And we're going to look at three foundations of what servanthood is all about. The first one is the context, the context of servanthood. What's really interesting to me is that chapter two comes on the heels of chapter one, right? And in chapter one, you know, we didn't look at these verses last week, but at chapter 1, the last two verses, notice what Paul is talking about. He's talking about the, the, the Philippian believers' experience of suffering. Have you ever experienced suffering, hardship, adversity, things not going your way, people being responsible for pain in your life? And in, in, in chapter 1, verse 29, it says this, For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in Him, but also to what? Okay, you got to read this. This is, this is incredible. Okay, I'll read it again. Verse 29. For to you, it has been granted. Okay, you've been given this gift. This gift of grace has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in Him. Is it a gift to be able to know Jesus? Yes or no? Yeah, yeah that's huge. I mean, there are days when I'm just like, man, I am so thankful that I don't have to live life without knowing that there is a Savior who loves me. I'm so thankful for a saving knowledge of Jesus. I watch other people go through certain circumstances, and I'm like, I'm so thankful to know Jesus. It's, it's been granted to us not only to believe in Him, but what's the second thing that's been granted to us, according to verse 29? But also to... No. Suffering, according to Paul, is a gift that we've been given? 
And then notice in verse 30, he actually specifies what kind of suffering they're going through. Was it a stubbed toe? Was it just they lost their wallet? What was going on? Verse 30, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. In other words, you guys are suffering the same thing I'm suffering. What did they see Paul suffer? They saw Paul in Acts chapter 16. The Philippians saw Paul being wrongfully arrested, wrongfully beaten, wrongfully imprisoned. And even now, he is writing from prison. He's saying, look, this is a gift. This is a gift. You can identify the kind of suffering because I'm experiencing it too, but I want you to know it's a gift. And then comes chapter 2. Therefore, let's serve each other. Like, what in the world? (laughs) I don't know if, if that seems like an odd transition to anyone else. But we're talking about suffering here, and then he jumps. So let's serve each other. It's a, it's a weird transition, and my question as I was studying it all this week, I was just like, what, what's the connection? Why does Paul go from acknowledging, you know, intense persecution and then now interpersonal dynamics? Why does he jump from uh, things like focusing on their suffering to focusing on being a servant? And I read a commentary. One commentary suggested, you know, there's really no rhyme or reason to why Paul goes from this point to this point. It's probably because the Philippians wrote Paul a letter with their gift. You know, or they sent him a gift in prison. Maybe the Philippians wrote him a letter with different questions. And Paul is just kind of going, like, down the list. Check, check, check. So suffering, check. Okay, now let's talk about serving, check. But the, the, the weird thing is that in verse 2, or I'm sorry, chapter 2, verse 1, the very first word in my Bible is... Therefore, therefore, in other words, there's a connection between, uh, Paul is drawing some, some connections here. He's connecting the dots that maybe are hard to see at first glance. I believe Paul is actually making a bold assertion. I believe that Paul is telling us that the, the context for the most genuine Christian service is personal suffering. Do you follow that? The framework to find the most genuine acts of service is when those, those acts of service, that heart of service, is coming from a life of suffering. That's why he goes to the example of Jesus. He was serving, though he was suffering. That's why at the end of chapter 2, he's talking about this guy, Epaphroditus, who was serving even though he was at the point of death. He was so sick that he was still giving his life. Man, this is, this is incredible. Paul is making a bold assertion that, in other words, when I'm suffering, I can still serve. Or maybe we should put it like this. Especially when I'm suffering, I should serve. Become a servant to the needs of others. It's easy to pray and sing, make me a servant, right? It's easy to pray and sing that when our cups are full. I've got lots to serve you, Right? It's easy to to pray that when we're emotionally satisfied, when we're financially resourced, when we have much to give. But how about when we're empty? Paul says that is when you should serve. Actually, just yesterday, so I was just kind of like wrestling with all these things and um, a name was in my notes. Man, this reminds me of Steve. This guy named Steve, he's a friend of mine in California. And um, Steve, he actually texted me at the end of April. Steve is someone that I met in Modesto, California when I was pastoring. And he came to believe in, in the truth as it is in Scripture. 
And he came to the Sabbath truth. Steve was an operations manager. He was a, a... he, he worked for a strawberry plant agricultural company kind of thing, and he was their operations facility manager guy. And so, um, but when he came to understand the truth about Sabbath, he felt convicted that he needed to rest in Jesus, that he needed to honor God as the creator and redeemer by keeping the Sabbath. And so he told his employers, and a month later he was, he was fired. I mean, he, he, he suffered persecution because of his belief, his convictions, for Jesus. 18 months later, he's still unemployed. He texts me and he says, Godfrey, I want you to pray for me. May 3, they're asking for rent. I don't know where it's going to come from. May 3 came and went. I didn't actually check up on him until just yesterday, maybe a week after that May 3 thing. I thought, man, Steve has it going. I called him up. Steve says, actually, when I called him, he was weeding. He was weeding a church member's yard, um, you know, for some extra, extra cash, odds and ends, different jobs and things like that. But he was still unemployed. And he said, Godfrey, I'm so glad you called. <laughs> um, <clears throat> he said that while he was weeding, his stomach was turning, his mind was going in directions that it shouldn't have been going. He was very tempted to feel discouraged, very tempted to feel discouraged. He told me that he had a, a conversation with his wife, Karen, that morning. And that he he kind of, it wasn't quite an argument or a fight, but he was just expressing this, this, uh, this sigh, this desire that he wants to get past praying about his own needs. He wants to get past that panic mode prayer life. Remember what we were talking about yesterday? Um, He wants to get past just surviving, struggling to take care of himself and his wife. Didn't God promise, didn't God promise that if we seek his kingdom first, he would add all these things to us? You know, just kind of expressing that kind of frustration. And as he's telling me this story over the phone, he was thinking out loud and he says, you know, maybe, maybe that's it. Maybe God wants me to think and look for his kingdom elsewhere, not just in trying to get myself out of my own pit, but how, who can I bless around me? Maybe that's what I need to do. Maybe I need to think about who I can serve, who I can bless, instead of how others can bless me. And as he came to that conclusion... I felt like, man, I am reading the, the letter to the Philippians. Because I think Steve was at a point where he was questioning, is there really any comfort and consolation in Christ? Just like chapter 2, verse 1 starts. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, some translations, they actually put it like a question. Is there consolation in following Jesus? Is there comfort of love? Is there fellowship of the Spirit? Is there any affection and mercy? And that's what seasons of adversity and extremity do to us. They make us question. They make us question, is there really anything worth to belonging to Jesus? And I think Paul's answer is, yeah, of course there is. Of course there is. And I think Paul is writing exactly what Steve came to realize over the phone, that the best way to recover that consolation, the best way to really secure that comfort of love, the fellowship of the Spirit, all those things he lists in verse 1, the best way to do that is not by focusing on how to get myself out of my own pit, but how to lift up others out of theirs. Man, that's huge. And Paul says that's the kind of mind that we all need. That's why he says it in verse 2. Philippians chapter two, chapter 2, verse 2. Fulfill my joy by how? By being like-minded, having this kind of attitude and mindset, having the same love, being of one accord, being of one mind. And so if, if that's the context of the most genuine kind of servanthood, suffering, 
then what is that mind? What is the mind of servanthood? This is where Paul starts launching into, okay, this is, this is then what it means. When he says be like-minded and have this mind, uh, the word that's actually there, it's not psyche, you know, the Greek word for mind and, and thoughts and things like that. It's actually coming from a word that refers to the diaphragm, phroneo. It's where we get the word diaphragm. It's that internal organ that regulates external behaviors, right? You, you follow that? And so he's like, okay, have this ticking away in you. Okay, what, what is it? What is it that inward perspective that's going to translate into outward behavior? In verse 3 and 4, he spells it out. One, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look, not, look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Wow, so how does a servant think? A servant thinks like this, that my goals are not for myself, that others around me are not stepping stones to my own personal success. A servant thinks, wait, others around me are actually better than myself. So I'm going to invest not just in my interests, but in the interests of others. And I can't help, again, maybe it's just because Mother's Day is coming around the corner and I'm just thinking, man, moms do this so well. Somehow, God gives them a heart of servanthood, a mind of servanthood. And, but the ultimate example, like we said it earlier, in verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in who? Christ Jesus. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Well, how did Jesus think? Look at verse 6. It says, who, being in the form of God, even though, and even though Jesus was God himself, notice how Jesus thought. Who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. What, what in the world does that mean? That for Jesus, divinity wasn't something that he was robbing. Right? For Jesus, divinity wasn't something that he was taking for himself wrongfully. And on the other angle of this, it's not something that he was clinging to. He wasn't clingy about his identity. Divinity wasn't something that he was defensive about. So what did he cling to? What did Jesus cling to? Notice in verse 7, this is the, these are the things that he took. But he made himself of no reputation. So that's one thing Jesus clung to. He clung to no reputation. It continues, taking the form of a bondservant. That was the identity he clung to. He took the, the identity of a bondservant. And coming in the likeness of men, he took humanity. Verse 8, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. So notice, he takes all these things. He takes uh, the identity of a bondservant. He takes the form of humanity. And then not just humanity, if that was humbling enough. In verse 8, being found in appearance as a man, it keeps going further. He humbled himself and became obedient. Okay, obedience is a big deal. But obedience to the point of death. Even the death on the cross. Wow. Jesus literally took nothing for himself. Though if there was anyone who rightfully could take everything for himself, it was him. Jesus took the form of a bondservant, became obedient, obedient to death, death of the cross. Deepening degrees of humility and servanthood. And then notice in verse 9, there's another therefore. You see it? Verse 9, therefore, for these reasons, God also has done what to him? Has highly 
exalted Him, has honored Him, given Him the name which is above every name. In other words, you know how last week we were talking about when Jesus is everything, then everything else is nothing, right? But the reason Jesus is everything is He became nothing. In other words, Jesus is everything because He became nothing. And you, you want to be everything to your, your family. You want to be everything to your employer. Look for ways to serve. Look for ways to serve. So the, this, we've looked at the, the foundation of the context of servanthood and the mind of servanthood. And how about the joy, the joy of servanthood? You're thinking, man, this does not sound like a fun life, <laughs> right? You're thinking, man, how, how, is this really the life that God offers us? Didn't he say in John 10, 10, I've given you life and life to the full. I've given you abundant life. How is that supposed to be joyful? Where is joy in that kind of life? I want us to go back to the beginning of the chapter, Philippians 2, verse 2. Remember what Paul said as he prefaced all these things, this like-mindedness that he was appealing for. In verse 2, he says this, fulfill my what? Fulfill my joy. Oh, that's great. You mean someone else is going to be joyful when I'm like a servant, right? No. What Paul is saying is, look, joy is going to be filled up, whether it's my joy, God's joy, even your joy. Joy is going to be brought to the full. I love that word, fulfill. Bring it to the full. Joy is going to be filled up when you take the mind and heart of a servant. Having this mind, it brings us joy. The reality is that joy, I mean, we talked about it last week. Remember the difference between happiness and joy. Happiness depends on things happening, right? Circumstances. Joy is dependent upon Jesus, when Jesus is everything to us. So joy is, is primarily sourced in our relationship to Jesus, but there is an interpersonal dynamic to joy. Other people in our lives, there's something that other people in our lives do for our joy factor, right? Our joy bar. But what I'm reading here in Philippians shows me that it's not that our joy is based on whether or not people are good to us or kind to us or if they think highly of us. Our joy comes from whether or not we treat them well. We think of them well. In other words, uh, joy, this relational component of joy is not whether I'm on the receiving end of interpersonal benefits. It's whether I'm on the giving end of those interpersonal benefits. Do you follow, yes or no? Yeah? I mean, and this is why Paul, he's writing from prison. That's why he can say, my joy is full. <laughs> go with me really quick. So hold, hold a finger here in Philippians 2 and uh, go to John. John chapter 15. This is powerful stuff. Jesus himself, he, he reminds us, hey, look, I want your joy to be full. In John chapter 15, verse 11. John 15, verse 11. John is the fourth book of the New Testament. It's a little bit left of that E in Philippians. John 15, verse 11. When you're there, say, I found it. I found it. All right. John 15, verse 11. My Bible has this all in red letters, like my whole two pages right here is red letters. This is Jesus' uh, kind of last hurrah with his disciples. Everything that he is saying here is worth eternity. It's huge. And in John 15, 11, he says this, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. All right, brought to the full. 
question, what were these things that he was speaking to them and to us that we could have full joy? Well, prior to this, you know, just kind of scan your eyes a little bit. What were the sayings that make for full joy, for remaining joy, abiding joy? Well, one, he's talking about abiding in the vine, abiding in his word, abiding in his love, all of these things that relate to a joy that's based on Jesus. In other words, find your joy in in relationship with Jesus that is strong, steadfast, and secure. But then right after verse 11, notice what he launches into right then. Verse 12, this is my commandment that you love who? One another as I have loved you. So all the while prior to verse 11, he's talking about this connection. And then after verse 11, he's talking about this connection. Yeah. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. That's a willingness, a sacrificial love, a willingness to give our lives for one another. Friends, that is something that brings our joy to the full. You think that this life of servanthood, this mind of servanthood is, is just like, oh man, I'm going to become a doormat all my life. This is not the life that appeals to me. No, this is the life that is a full joy. When we look to others rather than ourselves, when we lift each other up rather than ourselves, full joy is found according to Jesus. And I would say according to Paul too, full joy is found in satisfaction in Jesus and service and sacrifice for others. Okay, sounds good. All right, Godfrey, let's get practical now. (laughs) How then do I have that kind of mind? Because that is totally not my mind, right? How then do I have a mind of a servant? How do I experience that full joy of servanthood even when life is more characterized by hardship than it is by happiness? How do I do that? We'll go back to Philippians. I think Paul gets practical with us. Philippians chapter 2. Back to it. After this, this hymn of praise, this is why God exalts Jesus. It's, this is why uh, he's, he's the one that, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Philippians chapter 2. Back to it. In verse 12, he's going to start getting practical. This is how we become a servant. Let me just give you four, maybe five. I don't remember how long the list is. Let's, let's take a look, okay? Four or five things of how to be made servants in Jesus. Make me a servant, Lord. In verse 12, it says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. In other words, the first thing about becoming a servant is that it's not just about whether someone is watching, right? Uh, There are times when I walk into the living room, the kids are a little rambunctious, and I walk into the living room, and suddenly everybody's like a perfect angel. What's going on, guys? Nothing? Okay. The first dynamic of becoming a servant is to let it be more than a show. It's not dependent upon who's around or who's not around. All right? Make servanthood not just something to, to flip a switch on when others are watching. All right, the second thing, in, in verse 12, it continues, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Notice how it says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work salvation out. Work out God's salvation. Realize that it's not saying work for God's salvation, right? It says work out God's salvation. This is really interesting because the word here, uh, it actually emphasizes, uh, the emphasis of the verb is more on the end result of work, not the work itself. 
Working it out. Working it out. In other words, if there's a gift of salvation, now bring it to its full completion. This is really interesting to me because it, it communicates two truths. One, that the work of grace and salvation is more than just pardon for my past. The work of grace and salvation has a product that it's moving towards. And that product is a transformed life. It's a transformed life that looks like the life of Jesus. It's a transformed mind that thinks like the mind of Jesus. The work of grace is more than just clearing my conscience, but transforming my mind to think and live like Jesus. Truth number two about this whole working out idea is that, man, if I really am going to have the mind of Christ, it's only going to be by God's grace and salvation. Yeah? That in itself is a miracle of redemption. (laughs) It's a miracle of God's grace. That's why it must be worked out with humility. Uh, The rest of it, it says in verse 12, work out your own salvation with, with fear and trembling. It's worked out with humility, not frivolity. It's worked out not with a casual assumption that it will, ah, it's going to happen someday. No, it's worked out with a sense of anticipation. It's more than switching a flip. I'm sorry, switching, flipping the switch. Anyways. But it's a divine work. It's a work of grace and salvation. Man, this is the mind that doesn't think like the mind of Jesus. I need to be saved. So let salvation be worked out. And that's why verse 13 follows right up. Verse 13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. In other words, this mind of servanthood, you know you should do it, but do you want to do it? And God is going to work in you to actually will that, desire that kind of life. I love the emphasis here. It is God who works. The word for work right there is, is the word that we get the, the English word energy from. Energeo is the Greek word there. It's, it's God's power. It's God's energy. This is you know where uh, verse 12 was emphasizing the end result of work. Verse 13 is talking about the engine behind the work. It's God who works in you. It's all by God's power. And it's all for God's pleasure. So we're talking about how to become a servant. Let it be more than a show. Work, it, work out God's salvation. And then here's another thing. Cling to the two assurances of verse 13. The two assurances are, this is God's power, and it really is God's pleasure. It's God's delight to give you this mind. It's God's desire to give this to you. He is pleased to see his heart reflected in the heart of his kids. All right, here's number four, how to become a servant. Avoid two traps, all right? There are two traps that Paul lists here in verse 14. Do all things without complaining and disputing. Uh Uh-oh, what's going on here? These are two death traps to the mind of servanthood. (laughs) And these these are such tendencies of ours to indulge, even unconsciously. We allow ourselves to, to get into complaining and disputing. It's really, you know, when you, when you look at the Greek, it's funny. The word for complaining is an onomatopoeia. Do you know what an onomatopoeia is? Uh, pow! You know, it's a word that makes the sound. Pow, right? Bang! Kaboom! You know, those are onomatopoeias. Ring, ring! Those are onomatopoeias, okay? The Greek word is actually an onomatopoeia for complaining. The word is gogusmos. Can you say it? Gogusmos. If you say it fast enough, 
Um, it's supposed to imitate the sound of cooing doves, apparently, <laughs> according to the concordance. This is, in other words, these are background noises. The complaining is that it's, it's talking about that under-the-radar murmuring that you think nobody hears, but everybody is affected by. That's a trap. It's a trap to servanthood. Have you seen it happen in your household before? Have you seen it happen in, in your workplace before? Have you seen it happen in your church before? The constant murmur that's under the radar, this discontent that we express towards a person or a situation, even while we keep smiling at them, that's the gogusmos. It's the under the radar cooing of the dove. Everything's fine, but I'm grumbling. I'm grumbling. Persisting in that kind of complaining undoes every attempt of ours to esteem others better than ourselves. Do you follow that? Complaining is a trap to servanthood. The other one, he says, do all things without complaining and disputing. This is the more vocal side of, of the, the dissonance and tension. Okay? While gagusmos is the behind-the-scenes radar or under-the-radar kind of complaining, disputing is that which is outward. It's noticeable. The tensions that we let fester now finally bubble out. The word itself actually is talking about the intellectual dynamics of our tensions, not just to the arguments, not just about like disagreeing with people but having doubts about other people. To argue and dispute, we're talking about ways in which we kind of assume the worst about people and we start kind of, ah, no, that's not what you're thinking. That's not what you're doing. I don't know if you've ever had those kinds of conversations. But the reality is this. It is impossible to argue someone down and still esteem them better than yourself. That's why he says, do all things without that stuff. If you're wanting to really live the life of servanthood, look to the interests of others and esteem others better than yourself. It happens without complaining and it happens without disputing. For sure, you know, like we, we can give humble feedback. You know, we can give humble feedback with the intent of building others up. But when it turns into arguing someone down, we start, we, we cease living the life of Christ. When God works in us to will and to do of his good pleasure, he leads us to unlearn these death traps. Praise the Lord. <laughs> the kind of community that is characterized by complaining and disputing is a hostile environment. You're constantly walking on eggshells. That's not the kind of community that God has called us to live or be or extend to others. Amen and amen. And when that happens, notice the results in verse 15, the, the, the end result where all this goes when we uh, don't do it for show when we work out God's salvation, when we cling to the assurance that it's His power and His pleasure, when we do all things without complaining and disputing, verse 15, that you may become blameless and harmless. You stop hurting each other. Children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as what? Lights in the world. Other versions say stars in the world. You want to become a star? Become a servant. Man, when, when this becomes your mind, when this becomes your joy, the world is going to see the glory of God's light in the midst of darkness. This world is dark. I mean, it, it's, a, it's a world where it's the pride of life, it's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. In the midst of this darkness, is there a people that reflects the mind of Christ's servanthood? 
And when there are, people see the stars. Now I know where to go. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. When we let God work in us, to will and to do of his good pleasure, working this, this beautiful mind of Christ in us, we begin to operate more on other-centeredness rather than self-centeredness. We will shine brightly like the stars. So simple question today. Who wants to shine like a star? Who wants to shine like a star? I want us to pray together. Pray for the mind of Christ, that we would find the mind of Christ to be the joy of our lives. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, Lord, as we've looked at Philippians 2, um, what seems like to me just only scratching the surface, I, I pray, God, that these things, these truths, this reality, this, this perspective, and these practices would be things that you live out in us. God, we just raise our hearts to you and say, we want to shine like stars, not for our selfish ambition, but for your glory, God. There's a world that is wrapped in the darkness of perversity and pride, and they need to see stars to know how to get from A to B. Lord Jesus, I pray for households that are represented here, that you would raise up stars in our households. Servants who think like Jesus, who lift each other up rather than tear each other down. Father, I pray for workplaces represented here, that we would be the kind of individuals who are blameless and harmless. Rather than creating harm, we, we extend healing because we are living the mind of servanthood. Lord Jesus, I pray for, for classrooms and schools that are represented here. I pray, Father, that our young people would shine brightly as stars because they think like Jesus thinks. Lord, work out your salvation in us today. We pray for this, and we thank you that it's your desire and it's your power. In Jesus' saving name, let the family say, Amen, amen. and Amen.